Welcome and thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. Many of us see physicians as our primary care providers, but we also see doctors on television and movies or read books they've written. But what does it take to become a medical doctor? One of the most important events in medical schools across the country is Match Day. It is a nerve-wracking event which has played out on medical school campuses across the country since 1952. It's the day when fourth-year students find out where they will be for the next three to seven years for the residencies. Here to talk to us about Match Day is a well-known guest of this podcast, TTUHSC School of Medicine Dean, Dr. Stephen Burke. Dr. Burke explains what it takes to become a physician, including advice for those considering attending medical school, and he tells us where he matched and how he ended up specializing in infectious diseases and as Dean of the School of Medicine. Welcome back, Dr. Burke, to our podcast. Can you tell us about Match Day and why it's significant and how it was different for this class? Well, Match Day is exciting for all of us because the students that we've taught and followed over the past four years find out on Match Day where they will continue their education. Many of them will actually find out for sure which specialty they have matched in. Match Day is very, very significant to medical students. They've worked very hard for four years, two years of basic science, a year of clinical training. Their fourth year, often they, pre-COVID, would go visit lots of different hospitals and programs and use that time to decide where they actually want to go. And then on the same day, the third week in March, at 10 o'clock, all medical students find out what residency program they've matched in. They've been interviewing from October to February. They've been deciding what residencies are best for them. They've done a ranking sheet, ranking all the different programs in order of their preference. And then all of the residency programs around the country have also done a ranking list. It goes through the National Residency Match Program, which is a computerized program that matches optimally for both the resident and the program. They all open their envelopes at exactly the same time at 10 a.m. and find out what the rest of their education will look like. Can you describe what their education has been like up to this point? So it's been a very uh, long journey for all of these students. Most of them in college had medical school on their mind from the very beginning. They had to do a series of difficult courses like organic chemistry 
and they all had to take the MCAT exam, which is a rigorous competitive exam. Then four years of medical school, as I say, two years of basic science training, a third year when the clinical programs begin, internal medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics, surgery, psychiatry, family medicine, then additional electives in the fourth year, all leading to match day and a few months later graduation. But in many ways, this is just the beginning because the profession that they've chosen really is a lifelong learning profession, and they'll continue to study the profession through the residency program anywhere for three to seven more years. So what comes after match day, and how does this relate to internships or fellowships, residents attending? So after the MD degree, every medical student will need to do at least one year of residency, and very few do only one year. So the education continues, and now they have much, much more responsibility for patients. All the things they learned in medical school, now they're using in a very intensive way every day. And uh, residency is a progression of responsibility from first, second, third year, increasing responsibility each year. And then if they're doing internal medicine, they'll graduate after three years, or pediatrics, they'll graduate after three years. Neurosurgery, they'll graduate after seven years, and then they'll finally be able to start actually practicing medicine independently. In your years as School of Medicine Dean, what have you seen on match day in regards to the different classes, and where have some of the students Hmm. gone? Well, our students decide on what they want to do in very different ways. We always have some medical students that want to go to the very best, most prestigious places, whatever they consider those to be. So we have students all over the country. We have students at at Mass General, at Mayo Clinic, at Cleveland Clinic, Vanderbilt, uh, Boston Medical Center, all around the country in some of the very best places. But the one thing I will say that we've noted over the years is that we also have a lot of students who really just want to get back home, wherever that might be. So a lot of our students want to stay right here in Lubbock if that's where their family is. In fact, about 20% of our students stay here to do residency in Lubbock. A lot of students from Houston want to go back to Houston to do their residency. I'd say that that's a changing trend I really don't remember my classmates. Of course, it was a long time ago, but I don't think going back home to do residency was quite as uh, popular as it is now. But I think they may know something that we didn't know because you always do your best in a place where you're most comfortable. And that's why a lot of them want to get back to their home city for residency. Of course, the other trend we found is The obvious change is that there's been so many more medical schools, 155 medical schools now, so many new medical schools, and many medical schools that have expanded their class size. 
and the number of residency positions hasn't expanded as rapidly. So what we're seeing now is a much more competitive situation. Most students still get their first, second, or, th or third choice of residency, but a lot of students are more disappointed than we, than we used to see. And we even have some students that don't match and have to go through what we, uh, what we call the SOAP or the supplementary match. So things have become much more competitive than they used to be. Where did you match and did you get your first choice? So I was a medical student at Boston University. Very interestingly, on match day, I was on an Indian reservation and there were no iPhones back then. I think it took me a day or two to actually find out where I actually did match. And I matched at Boston City Hospital. And I tell this story to the medical students because it's important. So no, my first choice was Mass General Hospital. Everybody said that that was the best place to be. And we pretty much accepted that. And so it was my first choice as well as many of the other high-ranking students. And I didn't match there. I knew that I really hadn't done that well on the interview. Back then, they actually asked you cases and how you would handle cases, which they don't fortunately ask those kind of questions anymore. But the important point was it was maybe a month or two months into being at Boston City Hospital that I realized that actually was the right place for me. That was much more, the other residents were much more like me. It was an underserved population. It was a very challenging situation. There was a lot of responsibility and independence and collegiality among residents. And of course, Mass General Hospital was a very good place, but it was pretty clear that that would not have been the place for me. And so I tell students, you know, sometimes, uh, thank God for unanswered prayers, and sometimes you actually wind up where you really should be, even if you don't think that's the place where you want it to be. So what were your plans when you started medical school, and where did you end up? Like many students, I, you know, went through a couple of different things. For me, I had spent seven summers working at a camp for handicapped children, muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, lots of neurologic problems, autism. And particularly with respect to the muscular dystrophy children, that had a big effect on me because over the years you'd see them able to walk, barely able to walk in a wheelchair. And then we would, you know, find out one summer that they had passed away. Many of them died in their teenage years. And there wasn't very much that could be done for them. So I actually had the interest in medical school, working with children with disabilities, but most importantly, doing research in muscular dystrophy. And I was actually very serious about that and took a lot of courses in college, very specific seminars on muscle disease. I wrote a grant based on an idea that I had to cure muscular dystrophy and got the grant in my first year of medical school and did research in my first year of medical school and my great idea and my experiment didn't work at all. Turned out to be no way that that was in the right direction. 
And that was kind of the end of my research in muscular dystrophy. Fortunately, others who study incurable diseases have a lot more fortitude than I did. And in fact, I went on to really like infectious disease because it was clear-cut diagnoses, history and physical exam, most important, being able to treat patients and get them better easily. And so I went from that idea of working with disabled children to doing infectious disease, and that's what I wound up doing, three years of internal medicine at Boston City Hospital and two years of infectious disease fellowship. And then I went on with my own new research interest, which was infections in in elderly patients and infections in the nursing home. How did you end up working in a rural area? Well, what happened there is after all my training at Boston City Hospital, I had an opportunity to be a faculty member either at Boston U or Harvard in infectious disease. But there were so many others like me who graduated from infectious disease fellowships and wanted to stay in Boston. I think Boston had more infectious disease physicians than any other city. And I came to realize that's not really what I wanted to do, just be part of this huge number of infectious disease community. And I got a call from a chair of a new medical school in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is very rural, really caring for uh, the population of Appalachia. It was a new medical school dedicated to taking care of the underserved of that area. They had no infectious disease people there. And so I took this incredible leap of faith and left Boston and went to Johnson City, Tennessee. I'd never been south of Atlantic City, New Jersey. I knew nothing about Tennessee or rural Tennessee, but that turned out to be a great opportunity for me. I became chief of medicine there when I was only 32 years old and chairman of medicine when I was 36 and had lots of opportunities to take care of patients with infectious diseases, but equally importantly, to teach students and residents the things that I learned when I was in Boston. So why did you go into academia? So I probably went into academics for the same reason most physicians choose to do that. Uh, We realize that we've developed all these skills and information to take care of patients well, but then we can also use that training to teach students and residents how to do the same. So what a tremendous opportunity, not only to take care of patients, but to teach the next generation or generations of students and residents to do the same, to have to be able to teach all of the important values and qualities of a, of a good physician. And so I found as I was seeing patients to have students and residents with me asking questions about why did you choose this antibiotic or how did you make that diagnosis was not an inconvenience, but actually something that made uh, my professional work so much better. So that was the reason. And then I also realized, as do most who go into academics, that there were research questions that we had to answer, 
We had great ability to take care of patients in some circumstances, but in other circumstances, we didn't really have enough information. And uh, what attracted me to stay in academics was not only the teaching of medical students, but the ability to do research. And like I say, that was in infectious diseases as it affected elderly patients and nursing home patients. And back in the 1980s, I actually wrote a book called Infections in the Nursing Home, which I think probably only three or four people in the whole country ever read. But as what happens frequently with research, when COVID hit and 40% of the deaths uh, occurred in nursing homes, all of a sudden all of, all of our research about what's wrong with nursing homes with respect to instigating all kinds of infections became really important. So we go into academics because we want to uh, teach students and residents what we've learned and to pursue research questions to improve patient care. If someone is considering studying medicine, what do you recommend that they do to prepare for that? First of all, they should ask themselves if if, they're, if this is the right profession for them, then they should love science and they should be wanting to use science to take care of patients. And it's become almost a cliche, but that's what we tell those who are thinking about going to medical school. And I think the important thing is that whatever they're studying they need to be focused, and they need to have a good work ethic, and they need to be willing to give up certain things that might be fun when there's work to do or when there's tests to study for. But as far as preparing before medical school, actually, we encourage students to have a very broad education. In fact, if they want to go to college and major in a language or in anthropology or sociology, they'll still have to do the basic science courses, but there's so many different areas that they can prepare themselves for that would be very valuable as a physician. They have to be good students. They have to have a good work ethic. And if they have an exam on Monday and a friend asks them if they want to go to the beach on Sunday, they may have to realize that as a pre-med student or as a college student, you know, that's, that's not for them. Doctors make compelling characters on TV, movies, and books. Do you watch medical shows and are there any characters or shows that get it right? maybe in some of the books, and are physicians natural detectives? <laughs> I don't watch too many of the current doctor shows. There definitely are some, I remember some books early on, Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis was about a medical student physician that had to deal with lots of different ethical issues which was kind of right on target of the ethical issues that we sometimes deal with now. 
Dr. Verghese, who is my colleague in Tennessee, wrote a book, My Own Country. It's a nonfiction book, but it really describes what happened in the HIV era in Tennessee and how that affected rural communities. And he really got to know so many patients and their families well that that's a book that somebody interested in medicine might want to read. When I was growing up, Marcus Welby was on TV, and he was a doctor that had very, very good character, but he would only see one patient a day, so it was very different than what we, what we see now. I'm thinking of The Fugitive or mm-hmm. some other doctors who play detectives on TV as well, and just wondering if you dabble in <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> Well, doctors are in many ways detectives, and I think uh, Sherlock Holmes had a medical background. And yeah, very often for difficult cases, some of the ways we approach a difficult case is probably not much different than a detective would uh, gather information and evaluate information and search for additional information and trying to make a diagnosis. And there's always cases that really sound like uh, a detective story. Where do you see the medical profession in 30 or 50 years? 30 or 50 years is, is definitely hard to know, but there's a few things that we can be sure about. There'll be more and more genetic data that'll be used as we make diagnoses. In fact, it's very likely that when you go to a clinic, your genetic makeup is already defined in your electronic medical record. And so everything that your physician is thinking about and prescribing for you will be more specific based on your own genetic makeup. So instead of recommending everybody stay out of the sun to avoid getting a melanoma, we'll know what patients really are most likely to get melanoma, and we'll really concentrate on getting them the word about the dangers of being in the sun. Or even, which we're doing to some extent already, understanding who is likely to have a heart attack early on based on looking at their genetic makeup and their susceptibility to various diseases. So medicine will become more personalized when, for example, we tell everybody to stop smoking cigarettes because they may get lung cancer. There may be some patients who we know if they don't stop smoking, they will get lung cancer and we'll be concentrating on that advice to them. The other thing that I think is going to happen is that the direction we're going in taking care of patients right now is the wrong direction in many ways, and that direction is going to have to change because right now the healthcare system puts pressure on physicians to see patients very quickly, sometimes more quickly than they should see the patients. There's a tremendous emphasis on the advantages of seeing commercial patients 
versus those patients who are underserved. There's more and more healthcare disparities that are developing because of that. All of the qualities that we teach a medical student to take time with the patient, to learn who the patient is, their families and their hobbies, to treat all patients equally, whether they have commercial insurance or no insurance, all those values which they teach them, uh, but up against the healthcare system values which are different, often seeing as many patients as you can, making a good payer mix, being very efficient in your time, decreasing the amount of time that you're with the patient and more time in front of the computer. All of these are actually trends that are not good for patient care. And sometime in the next 30 years, probably that's going to be recognized and finding ways of really getting back to the more traditional values of medicine. That's what I'm hoping for with respect to the future. Well, thank you for coming back on our podcast, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield. Thank you.